What is, what is the book of Joshua all about? A lot of us are, are familiar with it, but what, what is it about? How, how does Joshua fit in the overall biblical narrative? Is it just a history book, or does it have value and application to us today? Now, the answer to those questions can be found in how we approach our Bibles, how we read our scriptures, how we, we approach the scriptures has everything to do with how and what we learn from them. And I got to be honest with you, I believe a lot of people have been conditioned, have been taught to read the Bible, I, I don't want to say incorrectly, but maybe, maybe without much depth. And I think there, there's a certain danger in that. I'd like to share with you Something that I picked up off an internet site this week as I was browsing through my daily reading list, and I think it reveals much of what is wrong with some of the teaching in the church universal today. And it also reveals a truth that I've come to find precious about the way I read my Bible. I don't have this perfect yet, but I've come to look at the Bible through different filters since I've, I've been pondering this sort of thing. So listen to these. These are seven statements that were lifted right out of a blog. I have direct access to God through the Spirit. Now, these statements are in the handout. If you, if you didn't get a handout with your bullet, raise your hand. We have some in the back. We'll hand them out. You'll be able to look at them yourself. And I think the visual here is, has some value. I have the first one again. I have direct access to God through the Spirit. I am a fellow citizen with the rest of God's family. I may approach God with boldness, freedom, and confidence. I am righteous and holy. I am capable. I have been rescued from the domain of Satan's rule and transferred to the kingdom of Christ. I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins, the debt against me has been canceled. Okay, now, let, let me say this. There is absolutely nothing wrong with any of the statements I just read. They're all true. As a matter of fact, they are all emphatically true. So, yet, if, if you're a dedicated student of the Bible, if you read your Bible with depth, you may have just heard something about those seven statements that maybe made you just a little bit uncomfortable. What may have made you a little uncomfortable was the repeated use of the pronoun I. It's in there seven times. If you count the one time it says me, it's in there eight times in seven statements. If you examine the statements collectively... If you ponder them and consider them carefully, think about who they speak about. God is only mentioned in a secondary sense. He's kind of like a bit player in the statements. The primary character in each statement is who? Me. I. Now, we all read the Bible more or less the way it was written, word by word, verse by verse. We all read basically the same words, depends on what translation you use, but they're all based on, on good manuscripts, most of them. But interpreting what we read is just as important as reading it. In other words, understanding what we read is just as important as reading it. We don't read just to read. We read for understanding. And I believe a lot of folks in the evangelical church today 
read the Bible to interpret what they read in order to learn more about themselves. Let me say that again. I believe a lot of people in the evangelical church today read the Bible to learn about themselves. It's not bad. Not bad. And right now, some of you are thinking, no, I don't think I do that. But how many of us read the Bible to find out what we did right? How many of us read the Bible to find out what we did wrong? How many times do we look in the Bible to see what we should do? Should I take the job in Cleveland? Should I take the job in, in Pittsburgh? Should I stay here? How many times do we read the Bible to find out what we shouldn't do? I shouldn't do that. The Bible says not to do that. How do we read the Bible to, to, to find out what the rules are? And some, people, some people don't read the Bible to find out what the rules are. Some people read the Bible to find out that they're free from the rules and they don't have to obey anything. And, you know, that list can go on and on and on. And we have to be careful what filters we use when we read the Bible. If we're reading our Bibles, if we are in a relationship with God in order to find out about ourselves, we are going to miss the beauty, the depth, and the texture of the truth of the Word of God. Let me be very clear about something here. There's nothing wrong with knowing who we are in Christ. We need to know who we are in Christ. Knowing our identity is a good thing, particularly for a new believer. But the deeper truths, the deeper meaning in the Bible lies in finding out who God is. It lies in finding out who God is. There comes a time when believers, just like babies, have to grow into mature Christians. This means that they need to move beyond being self-centered and grow into becoming God-centered. Some folks continue to struggle, though. And, and, and they struggle because they've been taught and they embrace and they believe that the goal of their salvation, salvation is to become self-aware. To find out what their gifts are, what their powers are, what they're entitled to, what God's done for them. To know who they are. So they read the Bible in a manner that leads them to find out about themselves. Now, we've all done this, haven't we? I mean, when I read, when I read about some noble act in the Bible, I put myself in the narrative. I could do that. I could swing a sword like that. I think God wants me to do that. <laughs> so we read ourselves in a narrative. There, again, there's nothing wrong with it, but we can't be obsessed with this. We have to ask ourselves, is that what the Bible's all about? Is that why God gave us scriptures to set us on some voyage of self-discovery? Now, there's a very easy way to find out. There's a method of approaching the individual books in the Bible called finding the head and the tail. It can help you determine the primary focus of just about every book in the Bible. I haven't found one yet that it doesn't work on. Now, just to keep it simple, you look for common themes between the first few lines or the first few chapters, depending on how long the book is, and the last few lines or the last few chapters. You look at the beginning of the book and the end, the head and the tail. And when you find that theme, when you find that recurring theme, you'll know that the general thrust of the entire book, everything in the book will do something to advance or refine that theme. We're to apply that 
principle to the entire Bible, we wouldn't have to go too far to find out our theme. Let's look at the first and couple verses in the Bible. Uh, look, we'll look at the head and the tail. Let's look at the head first. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We all know that. But look what we just saw. The only being we see in the first verse is God. Matter of fact, if you take a look at the first 25 verses of Genesis, you see God mentioned 25 times. 26 if you throw in the spirit who hovers above the waters. That goes back to our teaching on the Trinity a little while ago. And if you look closely, you'll see something maybe that is of interest to you. Neither my name nor yours are anywhere to be seen in that first chapter. In fact, no man or woman even shows up until verse 26, and I don't have to tell you what happens after they show up because very quickly things go bad. Looking at the first chapter of Genesis, I think it's safe to say that the head of the Bible is about God. Let's look at the tale. Revelation 22, 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is Jesus talking. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. If we count the pronouns, we see Jesus referred to four times. If you scan the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, for references to members of the Trinity, you're going to find 29 more of them. And again, my name is nowhere in sight. John the Apostle actually mentions his own name uh, two or three times in there, but it's very clear that when he mentions it, he's a messenger of God. John is the secondary role in that last chapter, not God. So the tale of the Bible seems to be about God as well. There's the theme of the Bible, loved ones, God. If you go up to the classrooms over here, which they've remodeled, you really need to go take a look. It's beautiful over there, top floor of the, of the uh, townhouse. They have a room that has the word history on it, his story. That's the Bible. It's his story. It's his self-revelation to his creation, for his glory. He's given us his Bible. He's given us these scriptures not to tell our story, but to tell his. They're there to reveal his glory. It's not for us to go on an odyssey of self-discovery. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but how many of you guys grew up in the 60s? We all went out to find ourselves. It was fantastic. It was awesome. We're wandering around the nation, hanging around with friends and everything, and we all did that for 10 or 12 years or so, and finally decided that we were right where we left ourselves back home. We came back, and we got jobs, and we started taking life seriously. The Bible's not here for us to find ourselves. See, the problem, the problem with our original seven statements lies in where the emphasis is placed. It's on me, it's not on God. But look, look at the difference when we place proper emphasis on these statements. God enables me to have direct access to him through the Spirit. God ado adopts me and makes me a fellow citizen with the rest of God's family. God allows me to approach him with boldness, freedom, and confidence. 
God imputes to me his righteousness and holiness. God equips me to do his will. God rescues me from the domain of Satan's rule and transfers me to the kingdom of Christ. God, in his limitless mercy, has redeemed and forgiven me of all my sins. He has canceled the debt against me. You see the difference? Reading the statements like that should catalyze a response in our spirits. We should be overwhelmed with thanks and gratitude. Whereas before, we might have felt entitled. These are the things that I expect God to give me. We should have a healthier attitude about his grace rather than a healthier attitude about ourselves. We should be able to be, present ourselves before God as humble and contrite instead of smug and casual about him. Later on, as we walk through Joshua, we'll talk about how we view sin and how God views it. When we see our role as secondary and God's as primary, it changes how we read the Bible. It changes how we read our scriptures. Paul, Paul got this. Paul knew. Paul gives us the ultimate reason for having the scriptures to begin with. 2 Timothy 3. Uh, Paul's at the end of his career. Uh, he's got a protege he wants to hand the ministry off to. He spent some time with Timothy. In particular, if you take a look at 2 Timothy, it's Paul saying, Timothy, these are the things that are important. These are the things that you should carry forward. These are the things that I want you to have before I go to be with the Lord. I don't have much time, Timothy. Listen carefully. This is the gold in your walk. And he says this in 2 Timothy 3.14. But as for you, Timothy... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Did you hear that? Timothy was acquainted with the sacred writings from childhood. I don't think Timothy was reading the New Testament. They didn't have it. He's talking about the Old Testament here. The Old Testament, the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So there goes the whole idea of the Old Testament being a history book out the window. There to make us wise for salvation. But listen to this. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We know that. But listen to verse 17. That the man of God, so that the man of God, the scriptures here, so that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Did you hear that? The Bible here is here to equip us to do his work for his glory. Now, I like that, but I got to tell you something. When I was a young Christian and I heard that we exist for God's glory, that he does things for his own sake, that he's a jealous God, I, I used to think, I don't know if I like God being jealous. I don't know if I like God being so self-centered. It kind of offended me. But you know what? I had to think long and hard about that. You know what I was offended by? I was offended by the fact that God said, I'm the center of the universe, not you, John. And I had, I had to get down on my knees at some point in my walk and repent and say, Lord, forgive me for being offended to thinking that you were egocentric. It's me. I've got the problem. How could God be egocentric? He's perfect. He's holy. He was here before all this came. He spoke it into creation. 
It's absolutely incredible the things that we convince ourselves of. The Bible's here to do his work for his glory. Now, lest we get too far offline and think that we, we're just worthless, you know, we're not preaching worm theology here. We truly understand that the Bible's about him. God's got a blessing that goes far beyond anything we could imagine for us. It's, it's spectacular. It's majestic. It's, it's wonderful. It, it, it's absolutely amazing. If we truly understand that he saves us for his glory, that his glory is revealed in our redemption, that he reveals himself to the world for his own sake, then we get caught up in God bringing glory to himself. We become the vessels. We become the messengers of God's glory, of his joy, of his peace, of his eternal salvation. We become the privileged bearers of his message. And God draws us closer to him and draws men closer to himself through our witness of the gospel. So, why is this important right now? What does this have to do with the book of Joshua? Let me, let me just tell you this. If you don't understand that the Bible is about God, Joshua is going to be confusing and maybe even a scary book. For those of you that have read through it, uh, I've had a few people reading through it with me as I prepared for this. You understand exactly what I'm talking about. So, we're going to spend our time in Joshua to see what it says about God. What it says about his character. How Joshua fits into God's self-revelation. It's a more important book than some people think. It's absolutely pivotal in the history of the Jews, but it's also highly influential in the story of redemption that God is telling in the biblical narrative. So we're going to call a series The Promise in the Land, and today's our intro. There are going to be 10 more sermons. Um, we'll have a very short break for Christmas. We'll finish this up uh, sometime in mid-February or so, um, maybe the end of January. So let's talk about Joshua for just a minute. Written sometime around 1100, 1200 B.C., maybe a few hundred years later, maybe a few hundred years earlier. And, and let me tell you why it's pivotal to Jewish history, um, why it's pertinent to the redemption narrative. In Genesis 1, God creates a universe. In Genesis 3, the man that God created and put him in the universe falls. Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham promises to make Abraham into a great nation, promises Abraham to make him into his people. He leads Abraham to Canaan, promises him that land. He says, you're going to have this land. This is where the, the title of the series comes from, The Promise in the Land. That's the same promise he has for you and me. He chose Abraham. He took him to a land. He said, I'm going to give you that. He's chosen us. He's promised us a home, a land. Only ours is eternal. Abraham's was just a shadow of what our promise is. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They all end up down in Egypt. And down in Egypt, the people multiply. They become a huge nation. 
and it fulfill exactly God's words, his prophecies. They, it, it happens exactly, except they're in Egypt and they're slaves. There are so many of them, the Egyptians have gotten afraid of them. In Exodus 3, God sends Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And he does exactly that. God is going to take them back to Canaan, back to the promised land that he told Abraham he would have. On the way, in Exodus 20, he gives them the law at Mount Sinai. In Exodus 26, he gives them the tabernacle. And in Exodus 29, he rolls out the details of the priesthood. Now, we need to think about that for just a few minutes. Uh, because we, we look at these things and, and we, we see them as historical facts. But again, God is revealing himself through this. He's saying, I am the sovereign king of the universe. I have authority over all these things. I have a chosen people. My people have a destiny. I am going to get them to the place that I promised them. See, all of that applies to us. Once God chooses us, he's going to get us to where he promised us to go. We see it happening with the Jewish people. There are laws. There are guidelines. They sometimes miss the guidelines. They sometimes disobey the laws. They sometimes turn against him. God is always there for them. God never leaves them. God never forsakes them. His grace uh, exhibited towards them is never dependent upon their behavior. It's dependent upon his promise. And we see all this roll out. So by the time we get to numbers, he prepares them for, for travel and he prepares them for battle. Leviticus before provides them with, with all the details for worship, for holy living, uh, civil type of structures in Leviticus. So he's really building them into a nation that is a theocracy, a nation where God is the highest form of authority, the central of the government. And in numbers, when he prepares them for battle, you know, there's a lesson there all by itself. God's going to give them the land. I'm taking you where I promised you to go, but you know what? There's going to be a struggle, and you need to be prepared for the struggle. All along the way, here's the amazing thing. All along the way, from Egypt all the way through, the people have complained. They have grumbled, they have groaned, they have refused to obey God. And in Numbers 13 and 14, as they approach the promised land, the land that they've been promised, their fear of man overwhelms their fear of God, and they refuse to go in. Nope, they look too big, they look too powerful. We're afraid, we're not going to do that. So they turn around to leave all but two. Joshua and Caleb. For their rebellion, God sentences them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. There are consequences, but he's still with them. They're still his people. So rather than entering the land of plenty, they return a barren wasteland wandering around for 40 years, still dependent upon manna coming from the sky. And God's still supplying it, still dependent on water coming out from rocks. And God is still taking care of them. Even under condemnation, it, during that whole period, they still managed to mutter and moan and rebel time and time again. You know, one of the things that always bothered me is the Old Testament is labeled as the book of the law. And the New Testament is labeled as the book of grace. That's just a popular conception. Not everybody has it. 
But you'll hear that, oh, the Old Testament all about the law, New Testament about grace. Isn't it exactly the other way around? I mean, if we understand the history of the Jews wandering out there in the wilderness, even as they come into the promised land, they are constantly stumbling, constantly dropping the ball, constantly rebelling against God. And there's this pattern that happens in the Old Testament. Is there, there is blessing. Um, they are thankful. They get callous. They get casual. They fall away. There is then a uh, chastisement. Uh, they repent, and that, then there's blessing, and it starts over. And it goes over and over and over and over again. And we constantly see God's expression of grace upon his people in the Old Testament. There's so much grace in the Old Testament that these people who have rejected him, who have turned against him, who have have constantly built other altars and worshipped other gods, God sends the Savior to them. The ultimate form of grace comes to a people that have fallen away. Jesus shows up in the New Testament. What does Jesus bring? Judgment. You know, I, I, you know, we don't look at it that way because we're in him. You know, those of us who call upon him as Lord, uh, those who of us who have repented of our sins and, and confessed and acknowledged his, his oneship with God, we don't see it as judgment, but it is. Jesus is a turning point. Where you stand on Jesus Christ determines where you stand for all eternity. So you have grace in the Old Testament, judgment in the New Testament. I don't think you see that if you're looking in the Bible to find out about yourself. Well, the book of Deuteronomy finds him at the border of Canaan one more time. This time they're on the eastern bank of the Jordan, looking into the promised land. Forty years prior, they started here, that star right over there in Egypt. They got close, they got close, right there at the southern tip of of Israel. Uh, That's when they turned back. By the first chapter of Deuteronomy, they're now here. The other star. And they're in Moab. Moab was hot and cold on the Jews as far as their history is concerned. Uh, Right now, we would call that area Jordan. Deuteronomy tells a story of this new generation of nomads. They hear the history of their, their forefathers. It reestablishes the law, reiterates the rituals and the feasts, talks about the covenant, all the promises God made. They're all repeated, and the people prepared now to enter Canaan, to enter into the promised land. Deuteronomy 32 tells us that Moses himself, who, who stumbled on the way, will not enter the promised land. But God graciously allows Moses to see the land from Mount Nebo, in Moab. I got a chance to stand on Mount Nebo uh, back in, in May when I was over in Israel. Here's what the traditional site looks like today, maintained by a Franciscan order of monks. Here's the entrance to the, the top. There's a, a memorial to Moses there. And, and of course, at the very top, there's a museum and a gift store. There's a museum, a gift store, and a chapel over everything in the Holy Land. And at the summit, looking east, there's a sculpture of a cross, a uh, very beautiful cross. But looking to the west, right there, that's the view that Moses saw when he stood on Mount Nebo. Now there's something miraculous about what Moses sees because he can see all of the land. Uh, but as he looked out with his physical eyes, 
That's what he would have seen. There's not much different there now than there was back when Moses stood on Mount Nebo. Right there in the middle is the Jordan River. And uh, about three miles to the uh, northwest is the city of Jericho. We'll be looking at Jericho as we move into Joshua. 20 miles to the east, just over the horizon, is Jerusalem. So those are your reference points. Moses dies in Deuteronomy 34, and that brings us up to the book of Joshua. So in those first five books of the Bible, uh, they're called the Pentateuch. Uh, we're looking at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're, they're the record of creation and the fulfillment of the first few steps of God's plan of redemption. He chooses a people. He promises to make them into a mighty nation. And God does exactly that. Beginning with the book of Joshua, God's going to fulfill the next few steps. He's going he's to give his people a home. And Joshua is going to be the one that will lead them into the home. But Joshua's not left to his own devices. He doesn't figure, have to figure out how all of this works. He's received the rules of engagement. Now, you people that are in the military know what the rules of engagement are. They're how this battle is going to proceed. How you will engage with the enemy. What you will do and what you won't do. You cannot exceed the rules of engagement, nor can you miss the rules of engagement. So Joshua has the rules of, of engagement. And they will dictate how he's going to take this land. A land that is filled with pagan peoples. And people that are sworn enemies of the Jews. The rules from engagement came down from Moses, who gave him the Joshua. And let me tell you something, they are harsh. They are harsh. Some of the harshest words in the Bible. Let me share a couple passages with you. Here, exit, uh, Exodus 34, 10 through 16. It's God speaking. Behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out from you, before you, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, and break their pillars, and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods, and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. That's tough. Listen to this. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. It gets worse. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. That's what scared them before. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. 
You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy on them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You can read the rest of that passage, verses 7 through 11, over lunch. Here's what he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 20, starting with verse 10. Now, now we're getting specific. I, I mean, this is pretty brutal so far, amen? Listen to this. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all of its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock, everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices they've done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you should not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. They're allowed to save the trees. But God wants them to remove all the people. Again, these are harsh words. But they prepare us. They prepare us for Joshua. Perhaps the most brutal, bloody book in the Bible. But you know what? It's only brutal and bloody if we read it from a self-centered perspective. If we go through Joshua, and we'll be careful to remind you this as we go through, but if we go through Joshua to learn more about God, we're going to see these three major themes. Number one, we'll see God's attitude towards sin. And I'll tell you something, it is, it is uncompromising. Number two, we will see God's faithfulness, how he is constantly an encouragement and a blessing to his people. And number three, we will see God's strength. And it is awesome. So buckle your seatbelts, beloved. We're going to have a good time with this. It's going to be a wild ride as we take a look at the promised land. Amen? We're going to do communion today. I'd like to ask the deacons to come forward.